Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Um, I am absolutely delighted to be in the good company of you all and um, my colleague and good friend, Eric Wiegler. Today, Eric, as many of you may know, is in the division of emergency medicine at Boston Children's Hospital and is the assistant professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at Harvard Med School. He's also the founder of Help Steps and really um, a pioneer research researcher in this field um, around social risk screening and referrals. Um, he really is you know, one of my most trusted colleagues and I just think of him as having sort of this uh, very longitudinal perspective um, that few others bring to this area of work. So uh, we're doing things a little bit differently today as uh, those of you who um, have participated in some of the previous coffee and science sessions may recognize. And our goal is just to sort of reflect on some of the things that we've heard over the last five sessions and to um, get Eric and maybe some of the others who uh, are able to join us who have um, been presenters in the past to sort of weigh in to uh, so that you can ask questions that uh, may have been lingering from from the last sessions or that may have you know may may be coming up just for you today. Um, I myself have lots of questions, so I'm going to take the moderator prerogative by um, just kicking off some of those questions. Okay, so Eric, I'm going to start um, because I am not shy. And I, I am going to start with a question just that really sort of captures your, your long view. Um, isn't Longview the street that your hospital is on too? Is it Longview? <laughs> Longwood, but very close. Longwood. I was so close. I was so close. Okay. So uh, that captures your Longwoody view. <laughs> um, you know, I went back and I was reading your 2007 article on social risk screening and referrals and the acceptability to parents. And I was so struck by how similar it was to some of the work that we did more recently with Amelia DeMarcus, who, who gave, you know, presented with Manal Patel on one of one of our coffee and science sessions. But I'm just wondering, are we have we made any progress in the research on awareness? Like if you look at what you were doing in 2007 and where we are in 2021, what do you think has changed and what are you learning from the new research? And is it affecting sort of the way you think about social risk screening? Uh, that's a, it's a really interesting question. First, I just want to say, I'm so honored to be here today. Um, I look around at the names. Uh, there are many unfamiliar names, but but uh, there are many people uh, who I know, who I've uh, published with, and I'm just really honored to be here today. And, and Siren of course is just so near and dear to my heart. It will always be one of the, the most important uh, places I feel I belong, and, and it's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I when I originally proposed the, the the publication in 2007, of course, that was for my fellowship project, which started back in 2003. Uh, so to kind of really give like an 18 year perspective on thinking about this, um, I think that I, I'm not surprised to see that the perceptions of parents, of families, of individuals that 
the medical setting is an ex- not only an acceptable place to ask about social needs, but actually a desirable place. The fact that that has not changed and that the numbers are reflecting this um, over the years does not surprise me. Uh, the fact that the data across places, of course, you know, it's always very challenging when we look at one study in one small city at one hospital, you know, how does that, how does, how generalizable is that? Well, now we've done these studies in dozens of cities, dozens of settings, and, 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 and I think the data is very consistent. What has definitely changed is the notion of the buy-in from the medical side of things. Um, and I think people are more and more accepting of it. When I, when I first proposed doing this study, I, I, many people just looked at me and they're like, what? I don't even understand why you want to talk about these things. These are social work issues or let them, let this kind of do it. The idea of using broad, um, uh, broad uh, screening in a medical setting was not something people were considering. Nowadays, you know, through the ACA and through all these other kind of changes that are happening, like, you know, there's funding for this and there's like payment and reimbursement for this type of work. So I think that's the real big evolution, you know, I think, which we'll probably dive into today, that the controversy still exists of, well, what should we be screening for? How should we screen? What do we do with these answers? That's where the, I think that's where the research is really kind of diving into the idea of acceptability and the, on the parent side, I think it's going to be there. Like, like, like people want help and even people who don't need it, get it um, and don't find them any more invasive than we're, when we're asking about sex, smoking and drugs. Um, and so yeah, I, I think it's moving in the direction I would have expected. Well, let me follow that up with um, a question that has you know, come out in some of the former uh, coffee and science sessions, but also has been sort of something that I feel like we're always grappling with in lots of our different projects, um, which is this question of, should we be doing screening if we don't have a response that is kind of related to addressing the social need that is presented. And I just am sort of wondering what, what you're feeling or is one, just like you're feeling from practice, but then two, what the sort of research or where the sort of field is going on, on that question. I just love to hear you talk about the rationale for screening. Sure. You know, I think if we were doing screening for, let's call it curiosity's sake, where we were just asking questions we gave no feedback to the families about the questions they answered, and we gave no response, i.e., do you want help and let's see what we can do, then, then that would be really questionable. Why, why are we asking these questions at all, um, both from a uh, truly from an ethical perspective, from the perspective of like, you know, just invasiveness, um, it wouldn't make sense. And then quite frankly, you know, I, I think one of the big questions we all ask ourselves is, my God, we are so busy trying to get through these, you know, brief encounters, like, why would I do this if it was just for that sake? So I would agree that if you're going to do nothing, you're just, it's going to be a data point in a EMR somewhere. Yeah, that's probably not the right approach. However, that doesn't have to be the approach. Uh, and, and I don't think that's the approach anybody's really recommending. I think the approach that we're recommending is we ask questions and then we do something about it. Now, sometimes doing something about it is making a referral to a social worker. Sometimes it's just being empathetic towards a family saying that's hard and how are you helping with that? And is there anything we can do or having very specific interventions? I think that the questions that are evolving now is what is the efficacy of these interventions? And then based on the efficacy of the interventions, should we be doing this, right? Because um, let's just take a worst case scenario. Assuming we were able to screen everybody, we found all sorts of problems. We had an intervention, but the intervention was 
utterly worthless. It did nothing at all. Well, then we're basically back in the original place. Like, you know, you actually, uh, Arvind Garg has raised the question, are we even doing more harm than good, you know, by, by forcing people to discuss these things and we're doing nothing at all. But that's not where we're at. And there's been never, never a study has ever been published in this category that says nothing is happening whatsoever. I think the bigger issue is about what is the extent with which things are happening? How much, how much success do we have through these interventions? And then is it enough? If you'll allow me to kind of like, just kind of paraphrase like that. And so this would be my answer. Um, we have to have our expectations be realistic. And the way we have to be realistic is try to compare them to how other things are. And so um, if anybody has not had a chance to see these, and probably many people have not, Academic Pediatrics just published uh, yesterday or the day before two, uh, three great studies around food insecurity, but two actual intervention studies, one out of CHOP, Emergency Department, and I'm blanking on why the other one was done. And basically both of them had kind of like follow-up rates when referrals were made uh, in the 10 to 20% range. So on the one hand, we could look at that and say, wow, that seems like a low number. Should we be doing this? And so I would put it back to the people who are skeptical about this in terms of smoking. When we think about smoking interventions, the best smoking interventions tend to frequently have success rates, i.e. people quit smoking for a week, a month, something like that, in the 7 to 10% range, 7 to 10%. Those are pretty low numbers. Like, like that's a lot of effort for a relatively low thing. However, the tobacco cessation community would say this is super important. We need to address these things. We know the health effects of these, and it's hard. And we just have to keep working on it, working, working on it. And they accept that. Do they want better interventions? Of course, but that's realistic. Well, I would say that's the exact same thing with these. These social problems are enormous. They have tremendous effects on our families, and we know. I mean. We've chosen the terms social determinants of health and health-related social needs because we've already accepted the fact they're related to health, and we know that we can make a difference here. And so I think we have to be realistic in our expectations and try to, to move from there. Eric, I, I, you're getting props from Rachel. Like, you know, I, I agree. Like, this is, um, I really love that analogy. Uh, I'm wondering if you buy the point that sometimes people make, and I think I, I you know, and I don't know if we actually made this uh, conclusively in our in our first randomized trial, but but it sort of stemmed from data that we had in the first trial that um, potentially just screening by itself without you know any action at all can can deepen kind of patient provider relationships or clinical team patient relationships. Uh, if that might it be me. Are you buying that? What are you, what are you thinking about the uh, research on that topic or could, should we be deepening research on that topic? Uh, I think that there is truth on this, but I think it has to be done how you do it. So uh, l- let's use the analogy about uh, screening around sexual activity and stuff and, and, and unsafe sexual practices. There are ways you can do that well, being thoughtful, sensitive, ask in a caring way and demonstrate your thoughts afterwards. And there are ways you can be blatantly insensitive to it and like really, for lack of a better term, blow it, just really do a terrible job. The same thing is with social problems. Um, I think if we screen in an insensitive, don't respond, it happened on a piece of paper, I don't care, you're not deepening anything. I think if we show empathy towards people and we actually like, like, like show that we care, that 
prof- it's a profound reaction. Um, and by the way, I'm going to say I can't look at the chat, so I have nothing, no idea what's happening. I'm on it. I'm yeah. on it. Yeah, it's so, okay. <laughs> so, you know, I'm an emergency room physician, and um, I certainly do not screen all my families for this in this context, but I do talk about it frequently, and I frequently have them download help steps to help them find social needs. And I will say unequivocally, when I get families to download help steps and I take the 30 seconds it takes to show them how to find social problems, uh, social uh, services, um, that causes the most tears and the most hugs of any intervention I ever have. People literally hug me and say, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. Now that's an individual in need of the help, but I think actually showing that we care and that we ask these things, it, it makes a difference. When we did our first intervention study in this uh, adolescent center at Boston Children's, um, we wrote a qualitative uh, uh, paper. And part of the title was, it showed that somebody cared. Like, you know, like that was talk, you know, that was the words of somebody coming back to us saying, this makes a difference that you care about this. You care about me beyond my blood pressure and these other health things. The other thing that we found, so we called up, you know, uh, close to, we had 400 family, uh, young adults participate and we got in touch with close to 300 of them. 39% had followed up with um, one of the referrals we had made and 61% had not, which again, like that's actually a pretty impressive number. And and is on par with like making referrals to a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist in terms of follow-up. And we asked the people who were in the, I didn't follow up category, if they had gotten help and like and move forward with their problems and a significant portion of them had like 40 plus percent. And w- then we said to them, well, how did you do it? Because they hadn't used what we had given them in terms of referrals and stuff. And they said, oh, I spoke to another doctor or I spoke to a social worker, or I spoke to my school or I reached out to my friends and they helped me get there. But the consistent theme that we're told is the process of thinking about their problems, the process of thinking about referrals they would like was the initiation of them actually taking the steps to move forward. So it's kind of like that theory of planned behavior. If we can get them to move into the pre-contemplative to the contemplative phase, we actually have a better chance of success. So if we do this well, I think it's a, it's, it's a profound thing for the relationship with the provider and our patients, but that we are actually helping even if they don't take the referrals that we give them. I love that. I also am struck um, by thinking about Stacey Lindau's team's work uh, where they showed, Stacey mentioned this in her first, um, the first webinar that we had, uh, just suggesting that people, even if you give one person a referral, even if they don't use it, they are very apt to share that information with their community of people. Um, and that, that to me, that makes me feel like we're underestimating the ripple effects of the work that we're doing. It, it was, um, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, as apps became a thing, because like literally when I started this work, the idea of like having a patient touch a computer, nobody was doing it. I was like renting laptops and using TV dinner trays in the waiting room to administer this thing. This was eight years before tablets were invented. Um, as apps became a real thing, it was one of the major reasons I wanted to down have people download the apps so that they can then have their friends download them as well. And it's not uncommon that I will work with somebody who's like in a homeless shelter, I'll have them download it. And one of the first things they'll say to me is, oh, I can't wait to get back to the shelter and show the other ladies how to do this. I'm like, thank yeah. you. That's awesome. So I wanna I wanna um, turn to Sam, because Sam, I think at one point you raised your hand. Do you, do you wanna ask a question? I do, yes, thank you. And thank you for um, having this conversation today. I wanted to pose a question to Dr. Fliegler. I am a PhD student in social work and I'm also a uh, full-time pediatric emergency department social worker as well. So I'm really interested in hearing everything you had to say. 
But I wanted to ask, why why is it uh, that the follow-up percentage, you said the follow-up rates with referrals is only 10 to 20%. Is there any research explaining why it's that low? Is it because it's such a new intervention or a new idea that you get these types of services from your medical providers or and or is it a function of just we need more efficacy demonstrating that these types of referrals and interventions work? So I think there's been a little bit of research, in, but I think you're actually speaking to an area where we could dramatically improve it, which is a real focus on the people who do and do not and kind of really doing a deeper dive into why or why not. I'm not familiar with particularly rich studies with this, but I'll offer a couple of thoughts from this is what the type of feedback we get. And then, you know, I think what's discussed in the communities, which is uh, as follows. So um, in part, it may be related to where they're having the, the evaluations done. I've come to a medical center. I'm focused on my medical needs. And that may be the focus of what's going on. You can imagine you have families dealing with complicated, scary, and or just basic medical problems, and that's where they're going to focus on, and that may not be where they are. Uh, second thing, um, as we are, as is well established, where there is one social problem, there are typically many social problems. And the more problems you're dealing with, the harder it is to move things forward. Um, we all experience this in our lives. It's not a novel thing to people with social problems. Like the more we're dealing with, the harder it is to deal with anything. And so I think that's a challenge. Um, I do think there are very real problems with some of the uh, interventions that we have to offer. You know, housing is a classic example of this. You know, somebody is homeless, somebody, somebody is um, uh, dealing with like paying the rent and stuff. We are limited in the resources that we can provide. Um, you know, you, you can, sure, you can get on a section eight or you can try to get public housing, but it's very limited and that can be a problem. Um, other resources are much more readily available to people. Um, uh, the food security type of issues are uh, fairly robust in what's available in terms of SNAP and WIC and, and uh, free lunches. Uh, and then you got the backup type of programs of the um, uh, of the food pantries and, and uh, the quote unquote soup kitchens uh, for hot meals. Um, so for some, so the resources are there. For some people, it's it's a related to about pride. You know, are they willing to do it? Uh, certainly, in our last administration, there were real threats to the immigrant community that you may not be able to get things like a green card if you're taking, you know, if if you're a part of the the you kind know, of government resources like SNAP. So there's a lot of things at play. So I think there's always ways to look at how to improve this. Um, I don't think we would say they're not they're not efficacious as much as how do we make them more efficacious. Uh, in our resource in our study with um. The young adults, the resource that was that people used the most was related to nutrition and getting to the gym. That was a resource that people wanted, and they took advantage of it. And I think that had a lot to do with internal motivation as much as uh, the motivation uh, external of availability. I think I'm I'm um, realizing that this also touches on some of the topics that uh, that Amelia has raised in a, a commentary that uh, she led. Um, kind of also looking at how we measure um, interest and assistance and sort of, uh, and then also on acting on assistance. Um, Amelia, I don't know if you want to talk at all about that uh, topic, but the, but it does seem like it's related here because it does have, a, there is a kind of measurement concept in, involved here. Yeah, no, I think um, how we are kind of framing interest and assistance is important as well, like uh, taking into account patient, um, their priorities uh, at the moment, their expectations of healthcare, if they're already getting assistance, um, there's so much that goes into that. So I think, as we mentioned also in our 
talk um, a couple of weeks ago with Manal, um, just how different people are, are measuring and, and framing interest and assistance is also, um, I think accounts for a lot of the differences that we, that we are seeing. Um, and I hope I'm not getting too distracted by trying to respond to the chat and not fully listening to your question. So let me know if I'm off. <laughs> There's just no, too many exciting conversations happening all over. I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the fun part and the hard part. No, 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 no. That's a, that's. I just wanted to highlight that I think, and actually, that maybe can lead to our next question, which is this difference between interest uh, or endorsing a social risk uh, on a social risk and asset screener um, versus actually having an interest in assistance from your healthcare provider is sort of at the core of this. And and, and you know, in Amelia's work, I think we've seen the range uh, runs from zero percent to one hundred percent. It all has to do with how you measure interest and assistance. And so, Eric, I, I know that one of the topics that has interest you is whether we should just be asking, "Hey, do you want do you want help with something?" as opposed to, "Hey, do you have enough food at the end of the month?" Um, what do you make of that difference? That question, you know, should we should we be just changing this completely and not assessing? you know, using a validated screening for food security, should we just be saying, hey, do you want help with this? Yeah, so th this is a complicated one. And, and uh, this is where I will, uh, for a moment, get on a soapbox. Um, I, I will say that I get sad when I read a paper that says, first, we screen for a problem, and then we offer a solution only to people who endorse the problem, because the data is unequivocal. The number of people who will not uh, necessarily screen in and yet look for assistance is quite substantial. Um, I have now done this in uh, primary care settings. I've done this in emergency settings. I've done this in the adolescent settings. And we know that roughly 50%, depending on the, the, the social need you're talking about, 50% of the people who say, I would like help have not screened positive by any screener that we've used for the type of problem. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's where the phrase, so in my first paper, I uh, coined the phrase health-related social problems. And then in the paper that we published with, uh, that I published with Clem Botino out of the Primary Care Center, we changed that at his urging to health-related social needs to differentiate the idea that there's a problem we can potentially screen for versus a need saying, I would like to have help with this. I, I think a need could honestly be endorsed as saying either a problem or a need. It doesn't have to be one or the other, and it doesn't have to be both. So this is what I would say. I, I think that there are reasons why screening tools miss people in terms of positivity. Um, in part, they may miss them because they're actually not positive. So food insecurity is perfect. Um, you know, the food insecurity screener is undoubtedly uh, the best and most robustly studied screener there is, period, end of story. You know, it's been used for about 25 years by the USDA. The hunger vital signs is the two question from it, you know, is, is, is a refinement of it that's wonderful for clinical needs, but it's the, it's the best studied one. So let's examine it. You know, it's screening. Do people basically run out of, are, are they close to running out of, or are they actually running out of, and there are consequences of food? Well, the, in truth, you don't have to be food insecure to need help with food. You may be making it. You may be getting enough food on the table, enough diversity, et cetera, but you're barely scraping by in life. And if you had SNAP, if you had WIC, if you took it access to the other things, that money can now go to other places. So the logical idea that people who are negative on the food insecurity screen may say, I could use assistant, it's obvious when you look at it from that perspective. But if we don't offer help to those people, oh my God, we are really missing it. Now, 
it's also logical to say that more people who are food insecure are going to endorse, yes, I would like help with food, than people who are not food insecure. That, that, that seems pretty straightforward. But in every single study we've, I've ever participated in, roughly 50% of the people who say I'd like help had not been food insecure. Now that is with the best study. We've just published that wonderful paper around housing where you've got two really good housing questionnaires that kind of nuance the way that we look at housing insecurity. And you see that the overlap between positive endorsement between them is quite low relative to what we would have expected. And so therefore, by, by definition, if we were to use a positive rate from one or the other, and say, well, that's the people we need to offer it to. We know we're missing people who could use it. And that does not include people who actually aren't screening, quote unquote, positive, but may need assistance as well. So, so to get back to your question, Laura, you know, should we, it, should we just be screening for problems without helping anybody? No, that, that wouldn't make sense. Should we be perhaps completely bypassing screening for a problem and just going directly to, do you need help with these things? I think it's an option. I think there's a couple of advantages of combining them. The one advantage is it actually helps us with important data about understanding the, the, the problems our populations are dealing with. It helps you as an institution. It helps the communities. It helps it from a national conversation, especially when a lot of these things are based in legislation where we need to make uh, effects. But the second point is that if we empathetically try to ask the questions, it's a it's a way of getting people to think about, well, do I actually want to get needs? If you leap right to, hey, do you need help with any of these things? And you don't contextualize it. I think we're probably going to miss a certain percentage of people who are just like, uh, no, and kind of go from there. Whereas if you ask the questions in advance, you know, are you having any problems with food? Are you having any difficulty making ends meet? Are you having any issues with uh, domestic violence? They may say no, but yet in the back of their head kind of think, hmm. Is this something that I want to actually get assistance with? And it also, especially when we're talking about from a primary care perspective, from an activation type of thing, again, it may move into the contemplative state. Are we getting there? And then the next time you ask the question, maybe that's the time we'll take opportunity. Or maybe it'll have nothing to do with the medical center. They'll say no now, but yet a few weeks later, they may take the opportunity. So I think there's a combination. I have to, I, I hate doing this because this is so much fun. But um, I want to respect people's time and your time. Um, Eric, I would do this with you every day of the week. Like, and actually, sometimes we do. But it is so much fun to hear you. So much fun. And I really am so grateful, not only to you, but to everybody who joined today and participated. Again, a huge thank you to our uh, some of the former speakers who joined us today and weighed in in the chat. And to those of you who've been advising us on the coffee and science sessions, like they're just such a good group of people. Um, and, and we will make it available to others as well. So I hope everybody is enjoying the series. Um, we welcome input and feedback on it. Um, um, and, and definitely feel free to send us your feedback. That is, oh, one more thing, next Friday. I, Nadia Islam, uh, associate professor of in the Department of Population Health at NYU, and Maria Limas, the founder and executive di director of Vision y Vision y Compromiso, uh, are going to talk about community health workers. So I hope all of you can tune in next week. Looking forward to seeing you. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science Series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurélien Jugla composed our music. 
Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produce the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.